1: plushcarecom slash
2: You're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. FM 104.
3: Yeah, but would you like to sniff a baby? Uh, that must be a. you think that's like an evolutionary Derek. thing, though? Yeah. To make but you want to. These are men
4: messaging this in, by the way.
3: Make you want to cuddle and hold your baby. It must. As a protective kind of thing.
4: Oh, it's so nice, though. They have a smell and it's so lovely
3: but then sometimes they don't smell too good
4: no sometimes they absolutely definitely don't <laughs> maybe <laughs> anyway. that's the trade off
3: yeah. when we're clean and fresh we will give you so much nice smell because what's coming is horrific
4: and usually when you do clean them that's when they <laughs> decide they're going to do everything that they shouldn't be doing
3: anyway. oh dear any other ones we've missed the great shout on the barbecues I don't know how we missed that one mm. at bakeries we've had the smell walking past a dry cleaner and cook grass petrol which Ford are actually doing uh, the and
4: smell it. of turf burning from a chimney fire
3: yeah all over that
4: actually yeah that is a decent one isn't it,
3: it? I know everywhere nowhere new houses aren't allowed to have chimneys in them anymore, anymore. so you're going to miss out on all the turf burning the I, real smell yeah. of the country
4: I actually do love that it's
3: a real fire smell of a real fire yeah
4: now this one's a really strange one talcum powder it's kind of
1: is it close to the
5: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
4: Uh, it's a bit overpowering though no?
3: It is a bit, It smells a bit hospitaly
4: Yeah I wouldn't be a fan of that now
3: I would never do that The worst smell in the world I think is a hospital Yeah Something about clinical w- smell. Walking down it. You can feel it You can feel like You're walking through it It's just very
4: It's cold And it's disgusting Yeah
3: I don't know There's something about that You'd know when you're in, You'd be blindfolded And dropped into a hospital You'd know you're there You're like Yeah I'm in a hospital Yeah, yeah. It's just something Don't very know what it
4: something. is I also don't like The smell of airports Why not There's also a strange smell In an airport
3: Smell of happiness? You don't like happiness? Peter I, love Ruben,
4: happiness. On no, holidays?
3: I don't know what it is. Oh, that's the other smell. It smells like it now a little bit. You know when you're in a hot country abroad? Yeah. There's a smell to that. You're out walking down the strip or whatever, it's late in the evening, there's a certain smell of being on holidays. Oh,
4: that, yeah.
3: We're getting a little bit today, thank you, Global Warming, because it's roasting Yeah. and you're walking out and there's a... It might be the grass or whatever's happening, but there's definitely a smell of being on holidays, which yeah, we're getting get a little that. bit today. Mm. You know what I mean? You could bottle that and you're you know can't go on holidays and be like oh it's fine yeah right Um, any other ones we've missed out any smells, it'd be like 100% smell that all day. Bottle it up, put it into a perfume. 87 On the way, the most expensive burger in the world was sold recently for €5,000. Uh, we have the chef who invented it and sold it coming up, uh, coming on the show in about half an hour's time. And on the way next, Control-Alt-Delete. It's today's tech.
2: You're listening to the Room 104 Podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Long. FM 104.
3: I don't know. I think he might have gotten higher than... Richard Branson.
4: See, there you go. The competition. It is, isn't it? Yeah, big
3: time. They'll all be sitting around their rich table going, Oh, yeah, Richard, you went to space, did you? We well, didn't technically go into space. I mean, I technically went to space. <laughs> so I got higher than you. So, yeah. It is a little bit, isn't
4: it? Fair play to him, though.
3: It, it is a little bit of dick measure. Yeah, yeah,
4: it definitely
3: is. That's all it is. Right. So it turns out he went 66.5 miles high above what is known as the Kármán line, apparently. That's the boundary line into space. So he apparently was officially in space. Branson was just in the upper atmosphere, I think.
4: Ah, okay. He
3: flew, this guy went on a a willy-shaped rocket up into space and the flight only lasted about 10 minutes. So billions and billions and billions of, uh, well, maybe not billions, but a huge amount of his money went into developing this space um, travel company. Uh, And here's what he said. I don't know if he, it was a very good comment to say, but he said afterwards at the press conference, he said, I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this (laughs) now not a good choice of words because Amazon has been exposed for being notoriously shitty to their employees
4: yes I did hear that
3: like their drivers are pissing in bottles to make their delivery targets people aren't allowed paid breaks people you know it's just how you expect to make a billion dollars I don't think you can be nice doing
4: it I don't think that was a genuine comment what I don't mean? think that was a heartfelt like, guys. Listen, thanks a million for that. He's I all think like, that you was tics. like, uh, yeah, I'm in space now because you're buying stuff on your Kindle. Yeah, I I do think that's what he kind of means.
3: You paid for all of this, yeah. even even if he was trying to be grateful and said thank you to all of our customers who's ever helped make this possible. Because supported us, supported us, made this possible because we were able to use some of you know we were able to use a lot of the funds to develop this space thing out. But he's basically, yeah, I don't know.
4: When you're that rich, though, you just don't care about anything. Do you,
3: you—that's you, what I always wonder. When you're that rich, you wouldn't like.
4: What? Why? Does in it, in this does world anybody?
3: of outrage and people, you know, Twitter storms and losing jobs, you, you you obviously have to pay your mo- your rent and your mortgage, so you yeah. got to be careful what you say. And you're like, oh no, I didn't mean that. And you lose yeah. your job, and then you're out in the street, and you can't you can't afford to put food on the table. <laughs> if you were free from all of that worry, because you have got hundreds of billions. Sitting in a bank somewhere I know okay It's his net worth Anyway he's, he's got a lot Enough money to last him A thousand years You just wouldn't care would you You wouldn't care you just be like You, you can't say that it's like, I can't uh, No you can't say that Because you're poor
4: He can't put himself In their f-
3: shoes because He can leave the earth Oh no one likes me Fine I'll go to space
4: Yeah
3: uh, You literally cannot shame me Because I can go to a different planet And you're stuck here on earth You just say what you want
0: look you all idiot You paid for it
3: like. Whoopsies Oh uh, anyway they, I wonder wh- who will be the next billionaire in space
6: Gates. Elon Musk
3: it'll probably be Elon Musk he's working on a space tourism thing as well
4: he'll go even higher
3: yeah he'll be like we'll go to the moon he's like alright relax,
4: relax fair
3: play to him anyway maybe not the best choice of words but Bezos has made it to and back from space uh, officially into space this evening um, another story here a Poisonous venomous spider could help prevent you from dying after a heart attack.
4: Now, I don't know how this is going to work.
3: You're not afraid of spiders, are you?
4: I'm not really afraid of spiders, but I mean, I still don't want to be stung or bitten by anything Mm. that looks like a spider. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, if there was one in my room, I wouldn't not sleep. Like, I'd just turn off the light and go to sleep.
3: Yeah, I couldn't. I'd just be like, what if it crawls across your face in the middle of the night? Like, it doesn't
4: even bother me if it crawled across my face, really.
3: Again, I think it was into that movie, Arachnophobia. It just gave me irrational fears of spiders. Mm. Anyway a drug is being developed from a molecule within this spider, the Fraser Island Funnel Web Spider. Now, the Funnel Web Spider is one of the most dangerous ones in the world.
4: They hide in dark places and they jump out. <laughs> yeah. So they love your shoes and under your bed and stuff like that.
3: Maybe they're under your car seat right now and you just don't know. Got well, unless you're in
4: Australia, Australia, you're probably fine. Probably fine. Probably fine.
3: Yeah. You're probably there's okay. Prob- there's probably nothing under the car seat right now. Or the pedal. Probably Ooh. not. Nothing. But you just might feel A bit of a oh, What was that?
4: God I just think It's a rat or a mouse Yeah
3: Anyway mm. University of Queensland Institute of Molecular Bioscience Has found a molecule Within the venom Of the spider That can prevent The heart muscles Uh, killing and dying themselves off so if you have a heart attack one of the problems is blood flow gets reduced to the heart muscle itself Mm. and with the reduced blood flow you've reduced oxygen and then there is a signal that gets sent to the heart muscles and the heart cells to die which is one of the problems why if you have a heart attack you can have a weaker heart and they've never been able to turn off that signal that tells the heart cells to start dying but this molecule from the spider is able to do that this molecule is able to stop the heart from killing its own cells so they were able to after inducing what would have been a heart attack situation in heart cells, they did it in, in a lab, not in a person. They found that administering this molecule made the cells stay alive longer and were healthier and weren't actually turned off or forced to die. So they're hoping to be able to manufacture this into a drug so that if someone did suffer from a heart attack uh, or was likely to or had reduced blood flow into the heart, that they would be able to use this molecule to ensure that the cells didn't die. And oh, you that's would have good news. a much healthier, happier heart.
4: That is very good news. Good news on that front. Yeah, very good news.
3: Thank you to the spiders for sorting that one out as well. Now, there's a couple of very weird stories coming up. One, I didn't realise Facebook were doing this, but they've put a stop to this for now. Facebook had been trying to build a headset that could read your thoughts.
4: Which I find bizarre. I mean, it's handy when you don't want to think for yourself.
3: Yeah. Now, I would say they stopped doing this because they probably realised that Facebook knows everything about you anyway. They know it your does. thoughts. Yeah. I mean, there's so much information about you locked into your Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook that they all own. Yeah. So, I mean, they say the WhatsApp messages are encrypted. They could probably sneak in. Of
4: course they could.
3: So they know all of your private messages. They read all of your DMs on Instagram. Yeah. They read all of your private messages on Facebook. They have all that information on you. Because it's on your phone that you take everywhere with you, they know where you go, they know where you've logged in. So they were trying to develop a head set that would sit on your brain and be able to decode the brain signals in your head and then be able to apply that to computers and maybe understand what you're trying to think or what you're trying to do. So Facebook has shelved that. They said, no, we're not making too much progress on this. They've been working on it for the last four years to say, we are going to continue doing it in the future, but we haven't really gotten any further right now, so we're going to just develop stuff for our VR world, our virtual reality world.
4: Probably a better idea.
3: Yeah, so they're abandoning that plant. But at the same time, A group has used a brain-reading machine that has turned a paralysed man's thoughts into words. That's
4: incredible. Isn't that insane? Wow. How exactly are they doing that?
3: So, they have... um They've done this over in Oregon Health and Science University. Neurologists over there have have figured this out, and they have a device that they place on a patient's head who lost his ability to speak years ago, so he can't talk. What it does now is, all he has to do is tr- try to talk inside his head. He has to sp- try and speak inside his head, and then they are able to decipher what he is trying to say from his brainwaves, and put the words that he is thinking on the screen. Oh, well. Isn't that insane though? That's like a psychic computer. But you literally know what you're thinking. So we spoke to people before who were like in locked in syndromes or in comas and they could hear absolutely everything. So can you imagine being in a situation where you can't communicate, you can't look after yourself? It would just be such a horrible, horrible existence. Now put this device on your head and you can communicate with people you haven't spoken to in five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, you can decipher, they were able to, the team that did this were able to decipher speech from the electrical signals in the speech motor area of your brain. They didn't think they'd be able to do this, so obviously this will have to go on and be verified. And I presume that they're not going to be lying and this isn't all BS, but a unbelievable.
4: Huge, huge deal, yeah. isn't it?
3: So, beforehand, they have devices that you can implant into the brain. So, if you thought about turning right or going right or thought about the word right, a certain part of your brain would light up and then control on the screen or Mm. your wheelchair would turn right and then you thought about left you do the same thing and that was very on off left right up down very kind of binary one or the other this now is decoding your thoughts in a certain part of your brain and knows the words you're trying to say lads come on madness very exciting Um, so that's control alt delete anyway today any other tech stories that we've missed let us know we do it every Tuesday at 11 o'clock still to come on the show a 5000 euro burger has been made and sold the chef over in Holland who invented it, created it, and sold it. He's going to be on shortly here on Room 104.
2: You're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Saoirse Long. FM 104.
3: It's Room 104. It's Cormac and Saoirse here. Good evening. Now, we like talking food on this show, as you know, but we recently came across a story about the world's most expensive burger that was ever made and ever sold a ridiculous amount of money, an incredibly expensive burger. And who knows, it might have been the most delicious burger in the world. But we managed to grab um, grab the inventor of the most expensive burger in the world. And I'm delighted to welcome him onto FM 104 this evening. Um, Robert Yandervine, how are you,
6: sir? I'm fine. Thank you for uh, being here. I appreciate it that uh, I can tell my story on the Irish radio.
4: Please do tell us your story. So you have created what exactly?
6: Uh, I've created most. Expensive burger in the world has ever seen. And well, it started back in January. But during the pandemic, my restaurant was closed. My takeaway was still open. But I was a little bit depressed. I was feeling down because I couldn't do the thing that I love. Because I love hospitality. I love helping guests. I love making burgers. And uh, I was sitting at my restaurant takeaway was still open I was training a manager so I needed to be there just to train my staff but I didn't need really need to be at the workforce so I was pretending at the table that I was working on my laptop but actually I was scrolling like the world wide web <laughs> and then I saw the old record 4100 euros and it was a burger that was about 350 kilos and I was like whoa such a cool record to have but it's such a shame that you make a burger that's like 350 kilos. If you have that record, the most expensive burger, then you need to make a burger that uh, one person can eat because that's the most expensive burger. And then I was like, in a quick second, okay, I'm going to do this. I need something to cheer me up. Some people go to therapy if they're feeling down and depressed. Well, I, I did this.
4: So what exactly is in your most expensive burger in the world?
6: Well, there's a lot in there. There are 117 ingredients because you need to flavor it and you need to... Um, like the, the taste is really extreme and intense. It has the, like uh, the five basic uh, flavors, salt, sweet, bitter, salt, and of course, umami. And it's a perfect harmony. So you need to put a lot of ingredients like to get a perfect mix of, uh, of uh, flavors. But uh, a couple of really expensive ingredients is like uh, the bun. I made it of Dom, uh, Dom Perignon. I made it myself. Uh, It's covered in gold and uh, you can eat really, you can eat gold. But if you eat gold, you to make sure it's like pure gold, like 24 or 23 carats. Otherwise, it's uh, not that healthy for you. And the fun thing about this burger, if you eat it, because it's in gold, your your fingers will be golden if you finish. Well And and something else that's in there was also really nice. Like uh, I, I, I talk about the layers, like Starts from the bottom. It's it's like the cover the damperian bun covered in gold. Then I made a mayonnaise uh, from duck eggs with smoke uh, smoked it. Then there is uh, little gems. There's a salad on there. Then there's my pickled cucumbers and my. Uh, pickled uh, tiger tomatoes, and I pickled them in, in Japanese matcha tea, and that tea is around 600 euros for a cup, so really expensive. It brings the, the umami in the in the tiger tomatoes and in the cucumbers. Then, of course, most important from a burger is, of course, the beef, the patty. I make it of wakyu, A5. It's like the best beef in the world. I used to chuck the short rib in the brisket, and those cows, they can, every day they get a massage, and they have a special beer diet, so I'm a little bit jealous of them because <laughs> they're, they're such a, a nice life. Then on top of that, there's a cheese because uh, a burger without cheese is like a hug without a squeeze. So the best cheese in the world comes from Waikie Farms. They make like a special cheddar. There's white truffle in it and uh, a little bit of gold also. It's around 444 euros for uh, one kilo. <laughs> it's really expensive. Oh, of course, there's white truffle on the on the burger. Then uh, I'm a huge fan of two, well, two drinks, and one of them is coffee. So I wanted to put that in the burger. And the other one, sorry for all the Irish fans, but it's Scottish whiskey, which I really love. So my barbecue sauce, those, those two elements, I wanted to combine them for, for my sauce. So I use a kopi luwak. I don't know if you know that one. But it's like uh, the the cat beans. They eat the coffee beans. They get in their uh, stomach. They get a certain amount of flavor and everybody knows how they come out. Then you clean them well. where we make coffee from and we do it on a special way. We make coffee on a slow coffee machine. It takes about six hours to get one cup of coffee. But then you don't have like the, the bitter. It's like a real sweet sense of coffee. So it's perfect to mix in an, um, in a barbecue sauce. And then I use a Macallan uh, raw cask, 350 euros. And then I make a delicious sauce. Uh, on top of that, onions. I, I love beer-bottled onions on a, on a burger. And it's one of the best things you can put on a burger. But it felt a little bit too cheap to put on a burger that's 5,000 right, yeah. uh, euros. So I was thinking, well, how can I pimp that one. So I made uh, iron rings, but not beer bedded, but Dom Perignon Chupin bedded iron rings. And I put a little bit of panko on them and they're delicious. They're they're so great, but really expensive too. Um, On that, we put king crab. It's cooked in uh, some vegetables and everything, but the most expensive part we cook it in is like in a white Chablis wine, around 120 euros a bottle. (laughs) We use that to cook uh, the king crab in. So you you really taste the, the the sweet and sour of the wine and like the the salty of of the of the cane crab and to top that one off put like a little bit of caviar 250 euros <laughs> beluga caviar on top of it then the golden bun in it with a knife and we put it like on a i don't know what the exact english word for it. it's like a dome a cloche right we call it in and we use some uh smoke to bring it in and the, the wood I use for the smoke, I infused it with the Magellan whiskey and let that dry up. And then we have like the real smoky, like a barbecue bite at the end.
3: It sounds, even you just describing it there, I'm like being taken through so many different emotions. I'm like, wow, this is ridiculous. It sounds so amazing. Did you have to, because it's obviously incredibly expensive just preparing this, not even selling it, but obviously the cost of this is ridiculous. Did you have to like, make one or two test burgers before you came up with the, the, the masterpiece that you did?
6: Well, uh, of course, I tested a lot because the bread, I didn't have like a, a recipe for the for champagne bread. I mean, I wanted to have, have like uh, like a brioche but made of champagne bread. How do you make bread out of champagne, by the way? I didn't know first at all. So I bought like 24 bottles of champagne and was like, okay, let's try this. And after like five bottles, I had a decent bomb, but it, it wasn't what I wanted. So I started all over again. <laughs> and after another five bottles, well, I didn't do that with the Don Piriounse payment, just to keep the cheap, uh, cheap right, Okay, yeah, And yeah, after yeah. like five bottles, I'm like, okay, th- this is good. And then you start perfecting how much uh, saffron can I put in there, because if you want to have the world record for the most expensive hamburger, you can make a burger that's worth like two dollars or something. So I need to to validate the record. I need to have at least a burger that was, uh, I think, around 15, 1600 euros, uh, because you need to, yeah say, why, why do we ask so much for a burger? Yeah. Well, the ingredients, that just the raw ingredients, no arbor, no labor, no wins, no profits, And so that's around uh, €1,600 Euros for my burger. So, yeah, and you're really testing, like, no, normally when you make a recipe, you know, I put a little bit of this expensive ingredient in it because you get a little bit of the taste. And, yeah. at least, and now you're thinking, how much of this ingredient can I put in there that the taste is still good? So with saffron, I was like, normally you do it with... Uh, a little bit of this but I was putting it all together and even did sometimes I did a little bit too much and then you need to take it down
4: and if people bought the burger
6: I made uh, three like masterpieces like the, the real masterpieces with all the most incredible uh, ingredients to be honest the first one I eat myself I was like okay <laughs> if I'm gonna sell this okay I, w- I want to eat the first one there uh. so the second one I sold for five thousand euros but uh, the thing is what I said it for me this was a fun project and I never intended to do this for the money. And to make clear of that immediately, I said, okay, uh, when I I applied for the record, I'm going to sell one. I'm going to give that money away to charity. And I choose the food bank because it's ridiculous to pay 5,000 euros for a burger. I also think that, but it's also ridiculous. We have a a real rich country in the Netherlands and we're 70 million people, but still 160,000 people are in need of the food bank. They can't buy any food in. I think it's ridiculous that in such a, a wealthy country, still people can buy food. So we give give the money away to people who are in need So one thousand people can eat, uh, can get a food package.
3: Ah, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, fair play to you because um, it it ticks all the boxes that way. So are you keeping this on the menu, or is this now you've got the record? Once that's verified, you'll kind of just move on to something else that tickles your fancy.
6: I also move. I. Always move on to something else, but it's such a cool thing to do in this project. But uh, it's, I, I started this in January and I'm working on, on it every week. So, just like a reminder, and also to, to because it's fun, I put it on the, the new menu for 5,000 euros. But if you want it, you sure you can order it. But I already told you how many expensive ingredients are in there, and I don't have everything in house. So, uh, you, you need to make a reservation for two weeks ahead. And I have like a down payment of 70, €750 Euros because it will be something if you have a no-show with <laughs> <if>, uh, the <laughs> that burger. That, that will be uh, not a good day for me.
4: If anybody wants to see this masterpiece, where can they find you online? Well, they can
6: find me on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram name is uh, King of Hamburgers. It's a, it's a good title for me. And I also put today a new website because I, I have so many burger ideas in my head and like I have 16 burgers on the menu and still uh, I think I have 25 more recipes in my head that I want to create. So I'm going to make a website and each week I'm going to make a new hamburger with a video. It's kingofhamburgers.com. But if you want to have my company where I made the burger is daltons. Dot com.
3: We're going to uh, obviously be sure to share that out across our social media as well. So if you're listening right now and you want to easy access to it, we'll put it up on our uh, Instagram stories right now because this is a, a, a piece of magic. Have you, as you mentioned, you're obviously the king of hamburgers. Are there any other ideas that you're kind of going to work on next? Like what, what are you kind of go right next? We're going to take on...
6: What I'm going to do right now, what I said, I just released the website today. It's still on the construction, I think. It's going to be up uh, this week. And uh, I want to make like every day, every week a new recipe and to be honest why I'm doing this because I'm writing like a a cooking book but only about hamburgers (laughs) because I love hamburgers yeah so I I wanted to have like they they were real nice like cookbooks out there but a real good book about hamburgers is still missing so maybe that's a that's a good new project for me uh, to start
4: well continued success and one day I might have enough to try the burger and I'll come over and taste it for myself thanks a million for coming on Room 104 tonight
6: yeah thank you for being letting me talk on the
3: way next here on Room 104 why do stupid people have the most confidence when it comes to things they have no idea about that's on the way
2: you're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Saoirse Long FM
3: 104 it's Cormac and Saoirse here now why do stupid people have so much confidence why is it that when you have such little information your convictions about a topic are solid unwaivable and then maybe you know the more intelligent is subjects that you know about you start doubting yourself over these things well it turns out that there's many reasons going on to make you believe something and not believe something else joining us now to talk about this uh, and why the less informed might be the loudest and the proudest and the more certain somebody who's written a uh, co-author of a book called The Knowledge Illusion why we never think alone he is also a professor in the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado he has done a really uh, really cool very successful viral test Talk called Why Do We Believe Things That Aren't True? And delighted to welcome onto the show Philip Fernbach. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
4: Thanks for coming on. Now, obviously, uh, there's a lot of people that will try and be controversial, especially online at the moment. They probably have a lot to say based on absolutely no facts. So what exactly have you found?
0: We have a whole program of research that's, um, we talk about a lot of this stuff in our book, the knowledge illusion. Um, And um, one paper that published recently was actually about genetically modified foods, which I think that you guys saw. And um, this is an area that is uh, pretty controversial, where a lot of people are very opposed to genetically modified foods. And yet most people don't understand very much about them. And what we found in that paper, is that um, the people with the least amount of knowledge were the people who were most opposed but those people also thought that they understood the topic the best they had the strongest views of their own competence and knowledge about the topic and that's something that we found um, across a lot of different areas that often people with the with the least amount of knowledge have the strongest opinions um, but they often overestimate how well they understand those things.
3: I take it do we all do that in some capacity?
0: Um. Yes. It's like it's very common. Now, one thing that we talk a lot about in the in our book is that um, human beings just don't know very much about the world as individuals. We're we're not very knowledgeable about a lot of things. We have pretty shallow knowledge. However, we all have areas where we do know more, where we have more expertise. You might uh, not experience this illusion. You might actually know what you're talking about for certain things. But everybody has this illusion for some things and for a lot of things because the world is really complicated.
4: And how do we distinguish between what's real and what's not real?
0: (laughs) That's a huge question. That's a big question um, and a really deep question. And the answer is that it's really, really difficult um, because most things that we have an opinion about are not things that are easily, um, that we can easily adjudicate or verify on our own. We often don't have enough information to do so. And we could spend our whole lives trying to study some issue and we might learn about it, but we just don't have enough time to do that. Most things that we have opinions about are sufficiently complex that it's just not obvious to know whether they're true or false. The flat earth uh, conspiracy is a great example of that. As individuals, how do you actually know that the earth is round? Well, there's not a lot of observations that we can directly make on our own that would verify that. Now, you can't see pictures and so on. But then I can argue that well, those pictures are faked by someone else. So the truth is that most of what we believe about the world is actually by virtue of listening to people that we trust. So the real answer to your question is that we have to be a little bit deliberative about trusting the right kind of sources when we get from, from whom we get our information. It's not really plausible to think that we can go and study every potential issue that we have to take a, a position on. But it's it's very difficult. You know, we have this uh, this uh, this idea of a house of mirrors. When you uh, are embedded in a community that believes a certain thing, it can be really, really hard to actually tell when that community's belief is incorrect or correct as individuals. So it's really tricky. And that's why you find entire communities of people that end up getting things wrong, believing things that are not true.
3: And then I take it social media has put that on steroids because you can now form communities and groups and you can be 100% convinced that lizard shape-shifting reptilians are controlling us in on this flat earth and you know you've no You've no doubts. You're just fully convinced.
0: Yes, big time. So this is this is what supports these kinds of um, these kinds of beliefs. And you're absolutely right that social media has amplified a lot of these effects to a great extent because now we're getting even less counter evidence to what we believe, and we can go and search out people who uh, proponents of the same ideas. And the other the other piece of it is that when you affiliate with a community and feel a sense of belonging, uh, that is going to reinforce wanting to. Uh, being motivated to maintain those beliefs. This is one thing with the QAnon conspiracy, which is really powerful, is that when people join that group, they feel a real deep and strong affiliation because they're welcomed in with open arms. And uh, it's it's fun and enjoyable, and it feels good to be surrounded by like-minded people who are telling you that, you know, there's there's this group of people who believes the same things that you do. So uh, all of that plays a big role in the social media Part of it certainly can't be underestimated.
4: Yeah, it's funny because you'd often think that like there's certain people, it's like trusting someone. You look at someone and within seconds you feel you don't trust them or you might trust them or you're warm to them or you don't. So, you know, like visually... If someone looks probably aesthetically pleasing, I don't know, you tend to just be drawn into that and whatever they're kind of saying you might listen to as opposed to someone else that, you know, it's all superficial, I guess, and the whole kind of social media world that we're living in. But is there more people that are susceptible to believing tripe over others?
0: There are some individual differences that predict. Um, the extent to which people prone to overestimate their understanding like this. And um, one uh, idea that we've looked at is this idea called, um, it's called cognitive reflection. And basically um, what cognitive reflection is, is this little test of mathematics questions that are are trick questions so that the First answer that comes into your mind is incorrect. And with a little bit of work, just about everybody can solve these questions, no problem. And so cognitive reflection is a measure of the extent to which you sort of stop that initial intuition you have about the wrong answer and you think a little more deeply. And people who are more prone to think a little more deeply um, tend to be less susceptible to this knowledge illusion that we talk about. Um, And uh, we Believe that's because they sort of before passing judgment on an issue or saying, oh, yeah, that's true or whatever, they'll do a little bit more. They'll stop themselves a little bit and say um, they'll go beyond the sort of stuff that you were just talking about, that more superficial surface level um, cues about whether something is true or not. And they'll think a little more deeply about it. Um, So, yeah, so cognitive reflection is something that um, that predicts this. Um, I guess the other thing is um, across different areas. What I was talking about before with genetically modified foods, and we found this in a lot of other areas, including, by the way, attitudes about COVID vaccine and attitudes about things like wearing masks and social distancing, and so on. Um, is that people who are really extreme in their views tend to be the ones who have the largest gaps between um, what they know and what they think they know. And so um, that I think that be, comes from the fact that if you're a real if you're a novice in an area and you don't know that much about it, everything can seem kind of Obvious and clear, but when you learn a little bit more, things often become more nuanced and more complex.
3: Because that's it. And there's a guy I went to school with who is a big. You know, I haven't spoken to him in ten years, but he keeps sending me all this stuff about how this is all a hoax and how none of this is real, and and how I'm just being a sheep and that he's fighting the man and that he's the noble cause taking on the enemy, and I'm and and I'm and I'm just an idiot. And I'm just like, how do you one get to that point? But two, how? Do you help someone like that I don't want to say see the light because that sounds a bit snobbish as well because I'm certain looking down on these people doesn't help the truth come out either so like, how, how do we work in that situation
0: yeah it's exceedingly difficult and this is one of the things that's that's um, it's exciting to work in this area because I think the ideas are so important and and, and so uh, central to the way that we view the world the frustrating thing about working in this area is how hard it is to actually get people to be more open-minded and to and to change their views and so on um, there are some things that work a little bit so things like asking people to try to explain the issue or getting them to think more about instead of trying to convince you or trying to convince them um, get into more of an explanatory mindset because what that does is it often reveals that the issue is more complex and that can kind of open people's minds but what you don't want to do is you don't want to attack people you don't want to make people feel like um, you're belittling them because that just leads to them getting deeper into their you know sort of doubling down in in, in a defensive way. Because people are very defensive about this stuff. Like if you have a counter consensus view on something, Thing. You're very used to everybody telling you that you're an idiot, and uh, you don't know what you're talking about, and maybe you, that you have bad intentions, and all this kind of stuff. And so you get pretty defensive about it, I think. And um, and the last thing you want is somebody coming along and 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 acting high and mighty. So you have to find a way to engage with people in a way where they don't feel like they're being belittled, and that can be difficult sometimes. Because when someone believes something really crazy, you just your mind goes to, "Wow, man, this person is an idiot," or "This person has bad." intentions. It goes to one of those two places. And so stopping yourself from doing that and sort of getting curious about why What's driving them to this belief? What is it really about? And, um, you know, you're not always going to have a lot of success doing that. Sometimes you find out that people are are just kind of not very thoughtful, um, or maybe they do have bad intentions, or maybe they're just um, so stuck in their ways and closed-minded that nothing's going to help. But I think a lot of the time what you will find is that people are maybe more reasonable and open-minded than you think they are, and they just think they're onto something. And they actually are being kind of open-minded in the sense of what you believe probably is, ver- is, by, is by virtue of you sort of having just nodded along to what everyone else is telling you. How much do you and I actually know about um, about the epidemiology of COVID and stuff? I mean, a little bit. I do some research and some work on it, but mostly what I'm doing is um, going along with what the people I trust say. So um, if you take a little bit more of that perspective, I think the kind of conversations that you'll have will probably be more fruitful and will lead to less uh, sort of internet rage.
4: Yeah, do you not think that people just leave people kind of believe whatever they want to believe? Because you can't change a lot of people's minds. And then if there is somebody that's just, you know, kind of sitting on the fence, they don't really know what to think, I guess. So I think, is it good to have your own kind of thoughts and ideas on things?
0: So, yeah, so there's there's this idea that we talk about um, called intellectual humility. And intellectual humility really is about calibration between sort of having the right level of strength of belief in something depending on how much you know about it. There's sort of two directions you can go away from intellectual humility, and they're both bad. One is being overconfident um, and being too extreme in your views when you don't know what you're talking about. That one's obviously bad. But being too diffident in your views is also bad. Like if I say, well, I don't know that much about the this, about this science of climate change. Therefore, I'm just going to throw up my hands and say, maybe it's true and maybe it's not. That's also not a good way to, to be. Now, what's reasonable would be to say, well, everything I've read based on reputable sources and people that I trust says that this climate science is pretty much um, is, 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 is pretty strong and suggests that climate change is real. However, I personally don't understand the science that well. And so the idea that I'm going to go out and um, be super militant about it is maybe not the right way to go. And if you want to be more of a um, uh, someone who takes on that role, um, go and do your homework. But if you just want to be your everyday average person, I'm not saying you shouldn't believe in climate science. You certainly should, and it's absolutely vital that you do. Maybe you should be open to the uh, to to um the idea that you don't understand the science that well, and maybe you don't know a lot of nuance about what is a positive behavior and what types of behaviors might be good or bad or whatever. And uh, and just be a little bit more sort of uh, uh, calibrated about um, your strength of your view being 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 consistent with how much you. Actually Actually, no. You might say, well, climate change is a really important thing and therefore it would be great if everybody like super strongly believed it and so on. Well, the flip side of that is there are a lot of people on the other side who say, well, COVID is a hoax and so on. And if those people were a little bit better calibrated, then like overall, you know, I think overall better calibration is going to serve society well. That That's kind of the way that I think about it.
3: We're moving into a, a, you know, peculiar time here in in Dublin and in Ireland where we've had one of the longest lockdowns in the world. Everyone is burnt out, everyone is exhausted and people are starting to, I think, really question the government's lockdown and question why certain things aren't open yet and, and all that kind of things. And I think a lot of people as well, there is a whole cohort of people out there who one, as you said, aren't very informed about everything, As we can't be experts in the virus or whatever, and then are terrified of questioning anything, especially on Twitter, because that's where your reputation goes to die. Um, do you think the world has become a much more difficult place for genuinely uninformed but curious people to put their hand up and go, is this the best thing we should be doing? Is lockdown way, the way forward? Is there another thing we can do? Because I think people are terrified of just the online lynch mob just cutting their heads off.
0: I think absolutely it's it's not just about the online lynch mobs, but at least in the United States, I don't know uh, about the political system in Ireland, but in the United States, the extent of polarization has increased dramatically recently. And there's this idea called affective polarization. And affective polarization says that people are not polarized necessarily on issue preferences, policy preferences, but we actually end up hating the other side. And Affiliating only with our side. And in the US, this is like such a, a big deal. I mean, people don't want their uh, kids dating or marrying across the aisle. They don't want to. Uh, get together and have uh, outings with people who have different political views than them. What that that creates this kind of in-group and out-group mentality, where there is a party line, and if you don't tow that party line, you're at risk of really being ostracized. And so, um, COVID uh, attitudes are a really good example of where this can run into trouble because there are many reasonable people. Say if you're on the left in the United States where the party line is sort of a more has been much more risk averse um, and says that we should have pretty extreme policies and regulations around COVID. And if you're on the right, it's it's more polarized in the other direction where it's like, you know, this if you wear a mask, you're you're not being a true patriot and someone like that. And if you look at probably uh, many, many people, including myself, we're more sort of in the middle, which is we acknowledge there's a risk, but, you know, certain kinds of behaviors, the benefits outweigh the risks. And so, and if you look on the right, I think um, I, I'm sort of a little bit left of center, but, but I tend to be a little bit more moderate. People on the right, many of them feel the same way. And yet, if you are embedded in that community, if you affiliate with that community, it can be hard to 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 say that. If you say like, "Look, when I go running outside, I don't want to wear a mask," you can be at risk of being uh, kind of ostracized. Things are changing now in the U.S. because vaccination has been going very well. But um, yes, certainly, it's 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 very difficult uh, for people. Um, maybe this sort of silent majority idea, where a lot of people do not actually have views that are as extreme as sort of the prototype of their mm. of their. Political group because the parties have become so polarized that a lot of people are sort of more in the middle when it comes to policy preference.
4: Where do you see it going in the next kind of 10, 20 years?
0: I, I'm internally an optimist in a lot of ways, um, but I am very fearful about what's been happening. I mean, we've sort of almost reached a breaking point in the United States where it's hard to imagine things being worse in terms of this polarization that we see. Um, the points you raised earlier about the amplification that happens through social media is just very terrifying to me because we, we as a society, have not yet developed any good solutions to this stuff. What we What is becoming a, as clear as day is that, human beings can affiliate in groups and come to believe just about anything about the world. And we've known that as a society for a really long time. It's always been the case that people have been prone to um, beliefs that don't make a lot of sense, um, and that are inconsistent with the science and inconsistent with the expert views. However, the extent to which those kinds of beliefs can propagate and build and flow uh, through social media is really, really scary. And in the United States, we see things like, you know, for instance, uh, uh, our former president was able to convince a very large swath of our country of the total falsehood. And that falsehood about the election being stolen has unimaginably high stakes, um, because if uh, enough people were convinced, if it was 50% instead of 40% or whatever, the the democratic uh, system that we've enjoyed here in the United States for a couple hundred years could uh, go up in smoke overnight. I do not see a simple and obvious solution to this problem on the horizon. It is going to take both sort of bottom-up work on the part of individuals, but also I believe there will have to be a lot of work done from the top down in terms of figuring out how to regulate social media in a way that makes it more of a force for good than a potential force for division and divisiveness. We have not solved that problem yet. And I do fear, have major fear that if we don't get our arms around it in the next few years that it could lead to some very dark and dangerous places
3: no we'll, li- we'll leave it on a dark depressing fearful uh fearful note but uh, but listen we, we've taken up a huge amount of your time and you know i said fingers crossed i think we, we we are we'll see how it goes let's just leave it at that we will see how it goes and hopefully it'll be better or worse if you if you tuned in you want to find more information best place to go you can pick up a copy of his book the uh, the knowledge illusion which he co-authored as well uh professor philip uh Fernbach, where else are you online twitter instagram people can connect with you
0: you know, have people check out my, uh, my TED talk. They can easily find that on YouTube. But most importantly, um, check out the book. I think you guys will, if you're interested in this topic, will find it very fascinating. And yeah, it was, a, it was a real pleasure to speak with both.
2: You're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. FM 104.
5: Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable.